Well, good morning again. I appreciate our musicians and the, uh, the music they provide for us to uh, uplift uh, our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to uh, help us have a, uh, a robust, worshipful experience. So we appreciate that. Guys, also thank you to uh, Noah for uh, teaching in Sunday school and uh, reminding us of those things from James chapter 5. <clears throat> uh, I'm doing things a little differently today. I'm, I'm using a screen for the first time, so hopefully my battery, <laughs> battery maintains. Um, but I'm just trying to do things a little differently and, uh, uh, <clears throat> and all of that. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for uh, the truth of these hymns that we've uh, sung together. We thank you for giving us voices that we could praise you. And we look forward to that day, Lord, when we will praise you uh, face to face, when we will uh, uh, sing in that mighty heavenly choir. We uh, thank you for uh, the talent that you've given us uh, to our musicians, to our uh, teachers. We pray that we would use our talents for your glory. We thank you for the one and others of Scripture. We thank you for bringing us together where uh, we can enjoy fellowship with each other and admonish and encourage one another. And we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your word, the Logos, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the truth of, uh, of uh, the gospel according to John and what he uh, recorded for us, and we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to those truths this morning as we consider these things again from John chapter 1. We thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would go to uh, John chapter 1. And we will begin by reading that great prologue from this uh, great book. And the prologue includes the first 18 verses, so we'll read those. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. 
For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Well, if someone were to ask you, what does your church emphasize? What is your church all about? Uh, How would you respond to that question? Uh, No doubt you have opportunities to uh, talk to people and and, uh, interact with people from other churches and uh, maybe coworkers, perhaps, or or others that you work with or interact with. And sometimes the the idea of church comes up, and uh, I was asked this uh, recently, you know, what's your church all about? Uh, Well, is it fair to say that we emphasize John Calvin? No, not really. We don't emphasize John Calvin. Is it fair to emphasize we, or to say that we emphasize C.H. Spurgeon? Actually, we kind of (laughs) do. Chuck has referenced a lot uh, from this pulpit. Is it fair to say that we emphasize the doctrines of grace? Yes, of course that would be fair. How about Reformed theology? Again, the answer would be yes. But even more foundational than all of those, uh, all of those things that we emphasize, is the need to emphasize Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we do emphasize Jesus Christ at this church. Um, if, you, if you don't hear about Jesus Christ in a sermon, then there's something wrong. And that should happen, and it does happen here at Community Bible Church. <clears throat> well, we've been looking at the book of John, the Gospel according to John, and uh, it is an incredible book. Uh, it's deep enough to keep theologians busy for hundreds of years, And yet it's simple enough that even a young child can understand. Even young children can understand the truths uh, contained in this book from John. An essential question that we have been discussing and been talking about is, who is Jesus? That essential question. And looking at the prologue of John's gospel account, specifically these first few verses, we've been specifically asking the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Now, why do we emphasize this question? Why do we keep emphasizing this and talking about it so much? Uh, We do that, uh, so so what if if everyone doesn't believe in this? And in fact, many churches, and we'll see this in a little bit, many churches uh, do not concern themselves with accuracy about Jesus Christ. They are not tenacious about properly identifying and properly articulating who Jesus is. Uh, they really miss that accuracy. Uh, so, but, but why does that matter? Well, we are called to be accurate concerning Jesus Christ. We are called for, to accuracy about Jesus Christ. Uh, as I said, Community Bible Church stresses this. We are committed to teaching accurately about Jesus Christ. That accuracy includes proclaiming the glory and exaltation of Jesus. It includes the proper definition of who he is and what he has done. It includes discussion and information about uh, where he came from and what he has done and what he will do. The bottom line is we must be accurate in our understanding of Jesus Christ. Those of you that work in the medical field can can, uh, attest to the fact that inaccuracy in the surgical room can lead to death, right? Death can result from inaccuracy uh, in the operating room. How about inaccuracy in the space program? That can also lead to death. 
uh, or significant uh, loss as, they, as we saw several years ago with the Mar Mars rover, or the one thing they sent to Mars, and one group of scientists were using the metric system for measurement, and the other group were, was using English system. So one group had 100 meters, and one group had 100 yards. Those things didn't match, and uh, they ended up losing uh, a satellite that they sent to Mars. The thing uh, uh, hit, hit the ground, and the parachute never deployed because they were inaccurate. <clears throat> well, inaccuracy about Jesus was and is pervasive. Uh, Jesus' critics in the first century crucified him on the basis of false and inaccurate information. And we still experience inaccuracy about Jesus Christ in 2023. 2,000 years of inaccuracy and prolific inaccuracy about Jesus Christ. False religions, for example, give us a misrepresentation of the true Jesus. <clears throat> and they don't have to get him right either. They don't, have to, or they don't have to deny him outright. In fact, a lot of false religions don't deny uh, Jesus outright. Um, they just, uh, they just mis misrepresent him, uh, which is one of Satan's tactics. It's, they are accomplishing the subtle lies of Satan. They just need to present a different Jesus than the perfect, righteous, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, divine, and human God-man, Jesus Christ. We've recently mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, and Mormonism, for example. But let me share another example, the religion of Islam. Islam says that Jesus is a great prophet. <clears throat> they talk about Jesus. Muslims, in a sense, believe in Jesus Christ, but they don't believe in the Jesus Christ of the Bible. They believe in a Jesus Christ that is a great prophet. They don't say that he's divine. And many so-called believers will take comfort in this kind of idea. They will say, see, the Muslims are with us. It's a good ecumenical vibe, and unbelievers love that kind of stuff. You can see that that's pervasive in our culture. We see caricatures of Jesus all around. We've, we've bemoaned the fact that uh, uh, churches in our area call him a Jedi or call him a superhero. <clears throat> Uh, just several weeks ago, I preached on this, and I mentioned the I saw that Jesus meme. If you recall, that's the Jesus that's like peeking. I can't lean. That's the Jesus peeking around the side of the frame, and there's the phrase, I saw that, okay? As if Jesus is like a little troll or leprechaun. Um, <clears throat> it's disgraceful. It's a misrepresentation of the glorious Jesus, the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Uh, these types of things rob Jesus of his glory, and they turn him into a joke. But Jesus is not a joke. Believers should never make jokes out of Jesus Christ. Let me share with you a, uh, a letter that was sent to a church recently <clears throat> about the church sign and about something they had displayed on the sign. The letter says, Dear Pastor, I feel compelled to express my concern about the messaging on your church sign that often includes a meme or joke combining something of cultural relevance with something church-related. I'm sure your intention is legitimate to attract drivers to notice your church and hopefully attend a service. But in this attempt to be humorous and relevant, your sign messages and jokes are actually detracting from the gospel and are offensive to Jesus Christ. Recently, your sign featured the popular I saw that 
peeking Jesus meme, which portrays an image of Jesus, quote, peeking from outside the frame of view with the words, I saw that. Your sign displayed the image of Jesus, which isn't even historically accurate, by the way, and your sign altered the words to read, hello from the other side, a reference to the Adele song. She has a song with those lyrics in it, and then also the other side of the grave as a reference. I beg you to stop making Jesus the punchline of a joke. This is one of Satan's key tactics. It is straight from Satan's playbook. When we treat Jesus as a joke, we actually align ourselves with our adversary, the devil, and his goal to diminish and discredit our risen Lord and Savior. We must instead always proclaim the majesty and glory of our Redeemer. Jesus deserves our praise, not our scorn. God has given your church an excellent opportunity to share the authentic and biblical Jesus in a prominent location along a main thoroughfare. Just as God publicly displayed Jesus as the propitiation for our sins, Romans 3.25, you also have the opportunity to publicly display Jesus, but display him accurately, you must. A church's sign is ultimately a reflection of its beliefs and attitudes about Jesus. Sadly, many churches and evangelicals have an unbiblical view of Jesus. The 2022 Ligonier survey, titled The State of Theology, found that 70% of respondents who identified as evangelical strongly agreed with this statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Let me read that again, okay? In the 2022 Ligonier survey titled The State of Theology, 70% of the respondents who identified themselves as evangelical, you could, you could identify yourself as Catholic or a non-evangelical, there were certain categories. Of those who identified as evangelical, there were 711. 70% of them agreed with this statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Obviously, this statement is unbiblical based on the truth of John chapter 1, verse 1, John chapter 8, verse 58, and Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Alliance needs Christians who will herald the divinity and majesty of Jesus Christ and call sinners to believe in him alone for salvation. I beg you to display the authentic and biblical Jesus on your church sign. Thank you, Aaron Walker, Beloit, Ohio. Now, that pastor of that church, to be fair, did respond to my email pretty quickly. It was within an hour or so. Um, I happened to be sitting there, and I looked back at my email, and there was a response. So I thought, oh boy, (laughs) where is this going? Um, The pastor was very gracious. Um, He indicated that I was not the first person who brought this to his attention. Um, He also indicated appreciation for the way uh, that I was trying to be gracious in my response, and that's what we need to do. Uh, There's no reason to offend people. Uh, The only offense that that should ever happen is offense with the gospel because the gospel is offensive to unbelievers, okay? Uh, But my goal was not to be offensive. My goal was to encourage uh, a brother in Christ to honor Jesus Christ. And this pastor offered his phone number and said uh, he would be willing uh, to speak more. So I'm going to try to take him up on that. But to paraphrase Malachi chapter 2, verse 2, 
we are to take it to heart to honor Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and I would encourage you, write that verse down, Malachi 2.2. 2. I'm paraphrasing, but basically it says, take it to heart to honor Jesus Christ. So we must think accurately about Jesus Christ. We must think biblically about him because, as we've mentioned several times before, Christianity is a thinking man's religion. <clears throat> and there are many doctrines of demons, as 1 Timothy ver chapter 4, verse 1 indicates. There are many doctrines of demons that intentionally misrepresent Jesus Christ. They purposefully present a counterfeit Jesus just like the swindler would present a fake $20 bill for payment at a grocery store. To think accurately about Jesus, we study and stand on God's Word, the Bible, because we understand that Scripture is the final authority for everything involving faith and life. Well, before we get into verse 3 today, and that's eventually where I'm heading, I want to go back and just, if you would humor me for a few, a few more minutes, I want to go back to that word logos, where uh, John identifies Jesus in verse 1, in the beginning was the word, or in the beginning was the logos. I told you that I would uh, relate to you some information about a, an old guy named Heraclitus. He was a Greek philosopher who uh, lived in the city of Ephesus, actually, uh, about uh, six centuries, 500 years before Jesus Christ. And this is from James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on this passage, specifically about this guy named Heraclitus and where this word logos uh, came from. For the Greeks, the meaning of the word logos is not embedded in religion, but in philosophy. In the 6th century BC, a philosopher by the name of Heraclitus lived in Ephesus. He was the man who said that it is impossible to step into the same river twice. He said it is impossible to step into the same river twice. Now, what does that mean? What's he getting at? Well, he's making the point, and, and I'll spare you the details. He's making the point that the water is always changing. And so if you step into the river at this point in time, that's water that's passing by you. You step in again later, it's new water. So that's his point. Uh, you're not stepping into the same river twice. To Heraclitus and to the philosophers who followed him, all of life seemed like that. But they asked, if that be so, how is it that everything that exists is not in a state of perpetual chaos? Heraclitus answered that life is not a chaos because the change that we see is not mere random change. It is ordered change. And this means that there must be a divine reason or word logos that controls it. This is the logos, the word that John uses in the opening verse of his gospel. <clears throat> However, the logos also meant more than this to Heraclitus. For once he had discovered, as he thought, that the controlling principle of matter was God's logos, then it was only a small step for him to apply it also to all the events of history and to the mental order that rules in the minds of men. For Heraclitus, then, the Logos became nothing less than the mind of God controlling this world and all men. By the time John came to write his gospel, the age of Heraclitus was nearly 700 years in the past. But the ideas of Heraclitus had been so formative for Greek thought that they had survived not only in his own philosophy, 
but also in the philosophy of Plato, Socrates, and the Stoics, and others who would build upon it. These ideas were discussed by many persons, much as we discuss the atomic theory or evolution today. The Greeks knew all about the Logos. Therefore, James Montgomery Boyce points out, it was with a stroke of divine genius that John seized upon this word, one that was as meaningful to the Greeks as it was to the Jewish people, and said by means of it, Listen, you Greeks, the very thing that has most occupied your philosophical thought and about which you have all been writing for centuries, the Logos of God, this word, this controlling power of the universe and of man's mind, this has come to earth as a man and we have seen him. John understands the importance of Jesus' incarnation. And so John presents Jesus, the divine God, who took on flesh and dwelt among us as a man, as the God-man. Jesus is the God-man. <clears throat> there, there has never been a more important hyphen in history than the one in the term God-man. When he became a man, Jesus did not cease to be God. When he returned to heaven, Jesus did not cease to be a man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Theologians call this the hypostatic union, the hypostatic union. That's the idea of two natures in one person. It is somewhat like the Trinity, three persons with one nature. It is a deep, deep mystery, as 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 reminds us, of the great, reminds us that great is the mystery of godliness. No one has ever fully understood this. Yet we bow in holy awe and amazement before Jesus, the God-man. And that's the Jesus that John presents to us in his prologue. That last quote was from the uh, book that we passed out a few weeks ago, The Hundred Proofs That Jesus Is Divine Book. So um, I forget what page it is, 88 or so, but uh, an excellent book and a lot of good resources in that book. I would encourage you to uh, make sure to review it. <clears throat> well, let's move on to John chapter 1 verse 3. Okay, we're moving on to verse 3 now. <clears throat> this great verse that continues to define this logos, this pre-existing Jesus. Verse 3 says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, think about this. Look what John is doing here. Go back to verse 1. John uses the phrase, in the beginning was the word. John is still in this mindset of the, he's comparing this or he's going back to Genesis chapter 1. He's uh, uh, eliciting these ideas of creation in the mind of the reader and in the mind of the hearer, you and I. He's thinking in terms of the creative act of, John, of God. This is where John's mind is and it's where he wants our thinking to be as well. So get that in your head. We're still in, we're still dealing with this, uh, the phraseology uh, we're still thinking about Genesis chapter 1. And John also understands what Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says in terms of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image. And John now declares that all things came into being through him, through the word. John presents Jesus as the pre-existing lo pre logos, the divine co-eternal God, and then he declares him to be the creator of the world. 
here's something to think about as well. Jesus must be divine in order to create. And to create means that he must be divine. Let me say that again. Jesus must be divine in order to create. And to create means that he must be divine. They go hand in hand. It's axiomatic. Okay? I love the structure that John gives us in verse 3 also. Notice the clause that he has there. He could have said, all things came into being through him. He could have just left he could have just left it at that. But then John gives us this additional clause. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. <clears throat> John leaves no room for error. You can't get around this redundant clause. There's no way to unravel or maneuver around the truth that John declares here. Jesus created everything. And apart from Jesus, nothing was created that has been created. John leaves no room for error. John is intentionally redundant. <clears throat> John leaves no room for confusion in this statement. He ensures that he encompasses everything as part of Jesus' creation. <clears throat> I like redundancy, okay? I like redundancy. Um, pilots also like redundancy, don't they, Joel? You have to have redundancy uh, when you're in an airplane, okay? Or in an operating room. In critical situations, you must uh, have some redundancy. <clears throat> I have redundant flashlights in my car. I think I probably have five or six of them, I think. <clears throat> the divinity deniers can't maneuver out of this statement. Uh, scripture is clear that Jesus created everything. So to further build on this question, who is Jesus, that we've been considering, who is Jesus or who is Jesus to you, you can say he is the Logos. You can say he is the creator of this world. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, uh, says about this world that it is God's world. He reminds us that it is God's world, not the product of blind, impersonal forces. I'm going to paraphrase a bit from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I give him credit for this, but it's important to point this out in, in regarding creation and then evolution, which is uh, prevalent in our culture. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, This is God's world. It is not the product of an accident. It is not the product of chance or fortune. It is not the product of blind, impersonal forces. The prevailing view is that the world is just an accident. This includes the actual physical structure and the history of it. And regarding whatever happens, we just hope for the best. There is no sense of rhyme or reason to it. The natural humanist sees no purpose in it and this is the natural conclusion of people who don't believe in God. But we assert, as Christian people, that that is not the case. The world is God's world. It is not a meaningless world. Its very creation was the result of purpose. This notion of purpose follows from creation, the creation of Almighty God. There is meaning to it all, a meaning to the whole universe and to history to everything that happens. He goes on to say, there is nothing more terrible than to feel that you are just the victim of chance or fate, of blind, impersonal forces, that there is no object to life at all. But here is a fundamental postulate that God created, God made it all, and clearly he had a purpose and design in it all. 
You and I don't know everything that is happening or why everything happens, but we can be sure that above it all, there is meaning and purpose. This is not man's world. There is nothing as foolish as the self-confidence of men, but it is a comforting thought that God is in control. What if the future were subject to men's knowledge and control and power? We have some very good evidence in this present century of what happens when men get the power and the control. Now, he's speaking of the world wars, World War I, World War II, because he's, he's uh, saying this in the late 1960s. <clears throat> we always start as Christian people with this primary concept, that the whole vast and complicated universe and history and all that we are involved with is something that has come from God, belongs to God, has a purpose, and is in the hands of God. God's purpose. Let's consider that for a minute. <clears throat> um, I, was, I was speaking with someone recently who uh, comes from a background where they believe that uh, God is not in control of all of the things that happen to us. Um, and often the number one example used for that line of thinking is the fact that there is suffering in the world or that there's evil. So uh, those things right there must mean uh, that God is not sovereign and that speaks to, under, that's an underlying factor of God's purpose. <clears throat> well, what, what do we do with suffering then? Why is there suffering? We've spoken at length about suffering uh, in, our, in our church uh, and, and how, how suffering has a place in the life of the Christian. I would, cons- I, would, I would encourage you to consider these verses, Romans 8, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. Or how about Ephesians chapter 1 that speaks of the perfect purpose and plan of God? Or John chapter 9, verse 3, where Jesus instructed his disciples after they asked him why the blind man was uh, born blind, what sin did he commit? Jesus said he didn't commit any sin. It's because it's so that God's uh, purpose and God's glory would be displayed through that blind man. <clears throat> so, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on God's purpose and suffering and how that plays into this, but uh, it is it is part of the discussion. It's it's something that we can that we can look at. Also, considering evolution, as we talk about creation, obviously, then if we say that Jesus created the whole world, and we have these redundant clauses that say that uh, nothing came into being apart from Him that has come into being, what do we do with evolution? Does evolution exist, or can evolution exist? And I don't, have the, I don't have the information in front of me, but I recall other statistics from the Ligonier, um, uh, the Ligonier survey from 2022, where a, a, not a majority, but a large percentage of even Christians uh, say that they believe in some type of evolution, okay? My friends, evolution does not, uh, is not consistent with, with Scripture, Okay, it's not consistent with John chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, evolution cannot exist. It's not possible. Consider your hand, for example. What an amazing, ex- what an amazing machine a hand is. The, the, the ligaments, the tendons, the bones, the way that it operates. Uh, same thing with your feet. Okay, very similar. Um, Dr. Joel could tell us a lot about feet and the amazing apparatus that a foot is. Okay, uh, or your heart or your skin, or lungs, or eyes. 
any part of the human body, the, the digestive system, the endocrine system, the reproductive system, uh, how did evolution know to develop all of that? Um, I saw recently, and I, I'm not going to get into it, but I saw a headline where an evolutionist uh, said that he, he believes that evolution wants us to be happy. Okay, how is evolution going to want us to be happy? It's ridiculous. Recently, I was uh, involved in a, in a science class, and there was a video, and in the video, it said that the male bird, <clears throat> it was showing birds, you know, the male bird, the female bird, and they were on rocky cliffs, and, and uh, in the video, it explained that the male bird developed um, colorful feathers to attract the female bird, and I wanted to say, well, how did evolution know to do that? Like, that's ridiculous. I mean, the female bird would have already been there. You, you can't have, you know, these systems, uh, they, they have to work together. Um, how in the world did the male bird's genes or DNA know what would attract the, the, uh, the female bird? You know, how, would, how did it know? Orange or blue feathers. <clears throat> well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. If you'd turn to Hebrews chapter 1 with me, I just want to review a couple of other verses that, uh, that go along with John chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll start in, verse, <clears throat> start in verse 1, but I want to read down through verse 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that's Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Notice that it says, and upholds all things by the power, or by the word of his power. Uh, Paul also reminds us in Acts chapter 17, that in him we live and move and exist. Even our very breath comes from God. You, in fact, wouldn't exist even for a millisecond were Jesus not upholding you by his power. When I was in college, one of my favorite classes I'd ever taken was Chemistry 101. Literally, that was the name of it, Chemistry 101. And Professor Turnquist um, was the head of the department. He was an esteemed professor. Um, he, you know, had all of the, he had the look and the vibe and the feel of that uh, great chemistry professor, okay, who, he was brilliant, okay, and everything was methodical, okay, he was a really good teacher, and he was teaching us about the marvelous and mysterious Adam, <clears throat> you know, you can recall from high school that, uh, or college, Adam is the smallest building block of all matter, <clears throat> and it has these mysterious forces in it, we call those forces nuclear bonds, and those forces in the atom hold the other parts together. So in the we have the nucleus, which is the center, the neutrons and the protons, and there's nuclear bond, there's some special force that holds those things together. And then flying around outside of that are the, uh, are the electrons, okay? And our, or our electrical engineers, they love those electrons because those make lights turn on and make air conditioners work, okay? Uh, but that's the atom, he was describing the atom. And we can observe those small parts of the atom, 
we can do experiments and, and see those things break apart, and we built bombs based on that technology, okay? But inside that atom are these things, these nuclear bonds or nuclear forces, and I, I distinctly remember Dr. Turnquist saying during class, during Chemistry 101, we don't know what that energy is. We don't know where that energy comes from. We don't know what sustains that energy. Now, as a young kid, uh, uh, I, I should have raised my hand and said, I know where it comes from. It comes from Colossians. So let's go to Colossians because you need to see this. <clears throat> I knew I'd figure out a way to get us back. Colossians chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 15. So we have the truth of John chapter 1, verse 3. We have the truth of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And now we have the truth of Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16. For by him all things were created, there it is again, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, notice how Paul encapsulates, there's no room for error here. There's no room to wiggle out of that. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. My friends, there's your nuclear bonds right there, okay? There's the answer to this mystery. All, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. <clears throat> Uh, when God created, he spoke the cosmos into existence, and then he continued to sustain and manage and oversee everything. No molecule, no molecule moves or even exists outside of his control and his sovereign plan. You're probably familiar with R.C. Sproul's uh, famous line, there are no maverick molecules. <clears throat> we believe that because it's true. If God were to remove his sustaining power, the universe would just collapse into nothing. That's, that's, that's the Lord that we serve, and that's the creator, Jesus. As I mentioned, God has purpose in his creation. Uh, many people try to argue for a creator via the intelligent design argument. Uh, we see design, and so we say, oh, there must be a designer. Einstein, for example, said that, of course, there is some intelligent designer but we can never discover or know him. Einstein said there's a designer, but we can't discover or know him. Well, he was giving up because if he'd read the Bible, he would discover him, okay? Uh, this is similar to the idea of the intelligent watchmaker. You've probably heard of that analogy where we, uh, we see, since we see design, we then must understand that there is a designer. But we need to be careful with these constructs of man's philosophy. Uh, the intelligent watchmaker is, um, it's true, we see a design, so we must know that there's a designer, uh, but it's also a construct of man's philosophy, and that is inferior to what we have in God's revealed word, the Bible. So be careful of those things. Well, verse 3 further, uh, further undergirds the foundation of what John is getting at here in his, in his gospel account, and that is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I want to remind you that the gospel is called the gospel of God because it is both from God and about God. 
Romans chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The gospel is also called the gospel of Christ because it is from Christ and it is about Christ. Uh, Jesus himself preached the gospel of God when he preached about himself. I also want to remind us that there is only one true gospel. As Galatians chapter 1 points out, there is only one true gospel. It is the good news about who Jesus Christ really is, that he was God in the flesh and God became a man to die for our sins. And this all falls apart if, God, if Jesus is not God. The whole gospel falls apart if you don't have the truth of John chapter 1. Um, it would just be another false gospel with false hope, with no mere, <clears throat> no mere man can truly save us, and such is the case with false gospels of those who deny the deity of Christ. And in fact, as Galatians chapter 1 reminds us, uh, divinity deniers are under God's curse. The gospel includes the fact that Jesus came to earth to seek and to save lost sinners, uh, which you and I are. <clears throat> so as we wrap this up today, I would remind us uh, of the truth that Jesus is the God-man. We'll get into that later when we talk about the incarnation, uh, where John says in the prologue, he, the flesh, or he became uh, flesh and dwelt among us. But all of that is the foundation of the gospel, the truth that Jesus came to earth to save lost sinners. And as, as uh, we said this morning, a couple times that word propitiation came up. Uh, he came to pay the debt that we could not pay uh, and assuage God's wrath. Friends, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, and, and, and you know, we, we don't walk around with uh, you know, letters on our foreheads indicating uh, who is who, believers or unbelievers, but it is very likely that there are unbelievers in this room. And I would encourage you and beg you to consider the truth of this. Consider the truth that John gives us in his, in his gospel. Uh, because John's whole point in writing this was so that we would understand the truth and that so we would believe in it and be saved. And that's our encouragement to each of you. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the Logos. We thank you that uh, you inspired John to write these words for us so that we would know Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would be careful to know him accurately and to know him biblically, to know that he was and is the perfect God-man. Uh, he is fully God and fully man. We Thank you for giving us uh, this revelation of yourself, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to deal with uh, some of these parts that are mysteries to us. We just hope that you would, we ask that you would help us to believe this. We thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you uh, for the one another's and for each other, and we pray that you would help us to uh, live these things out in our week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>